Welcome to another episode of Talk of Tonawanda. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests only that do not represent any other individual or organization. Welcome, Carl. Episode 25, Carl. How did we make it? How? How does this happen? So many people are asking that question. We don't have the answer. They don't have the answer. And and we're not telling, even if we knew. But 25, you know, if we were 25 years of age, this would be graduating with our PhD. So we're kind of doctors of the the podcast. Congratulations to us, darn it. To us. You know what? Uh, My shoulder hurts from patting ourselves on the back, but... Cheers um, to you, lifting my... My virtual cup of coffee. Yeah. And, yeah. I don't know if people are listening because they enjoy it. They have nothing better to do. Yes. Uh, they've lost capacity okay. or they want to rage against the machine. Yes. You know, it's, there, there's so many different ways that this could go. We can't get any more neutral than what we are right now, but we'll try to endeavor maybe on episode 75 when we're out on the road, you know, in our traveling podcast van. Van or, or van. electrified wheelchairs, you know because I'm, I'm looking you know, at them now. Do you know what I'm considering is us kind of investing in one of those, the older post office ah. utility trucks. Ah. Wouldn't that be fun? Be interesting, but would we supplement the income uh, that we don't get doing this by delivering packages? No, we would just advertise. We would sell wraps. Wraps. You know, like a, like a vehicle like, wrap. Or something are, else. Yeah, no, that's not a rap. That's more no. of a dance beat. Ah, see, see? I, I am one with <laughs> the young people. Yes. I know yes, what they're are. looking for. Yes, I do. I Being, do. you know, six days younger than myself. Yes. Your early 70s. You're looking good, though. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I have to, I, I eat right. Um, I take Geritol and <laughs> pounds of makeup put on with a yes. uh, cement trowel, and it helps. And with it all helps. that, you still have a radio face. I do. I have yeah. the face for radio. We there isn't it. a radio out there that could show it, so it's it's perfect. It's a nice blend. You know, all silliness aside, we have to get to the serious stuff. I'm sorry. We have to get to it already? Well, the serious stuff being what we do every single program, and people go, ah, scream, can't stand this. It's the National Days, Carl. National Days. The oh, National yes. Days. And here comes the collective groan throughout the planet yes. on Frank's day of, or this is the day of, or the anniversary of. Yeah, Go ahead. We're not going to drag this out because we do have a special guest today, but I'm going to keep you Every guest is special, they, but they this are. one is very special. She's special and, yes. and, and intelligent, yep. well-spoken, right. and somehow we convinced her to be here. And the face for television and movies. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And that's a great segue. But let's get to these national days. Have you uh, ever had... See, I was trying to get out of it. See, I know. Folks, I was trying. I, I, I tried my best. It's, it's futile. It's like babysitting and dog walking. You just can't, You can delay it, but the results are really bad. All right, go ahead. I, have you ever made or eaten Scrapple? It's, Use it's, it in a sentence. Um, we had gay family game night, and we played Scrabble. No, no. Scrapple is a food. Scrapple? Scrapple. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it's the predecessor to like corned beef and spam kind of a thing. Oh, Lord. Uh, right? And that's where it came from. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it short, folks, but no, I've never had that before. You've never had that before. I, even if I did, I would probably not admit to it because... Denial is not... 
healthy for you, Carl. I'm sorry. Denial is a bad thing. You have you have to embrace this. How about National Chicken Soup for the Soul Day? Sure, sure. That's a book, wasn't it? it well, chicken soup for the kids, teenagers, infants, moms, right, dads. Right. I'm more of a Girl Scout cookies for the dad guy, but chicken soup for the soul is okay. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. All right. Uh, this one, unfortunately, you're 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 probably one of those people who have maligned their taste buds so that you would appreciate this day. It's National Pizza with the Works except Anchovies Day. Wow. And literally, they made a day for loaded pizza. Without? Minus, minus the little fish. Probably my fifth ingredient, if I'm going to load up a pizza, would be the anchovies. Okay, so throw we're, them on we're, there. we're parallel. We're parallel on yeah. that. There, there are places that, they don't even, in they our don't, own community, they don't, they don't have don't, them. They, they don't have them. They don't have them. If you say anchovies, they wrinkle no. their face and... It's like, have you ever eaten an anchovy? Oh, golly, no. That salty little, slimy little, oily, bony fish thing. Be being of Italian heritage, you've probably had a Caesar salad or two. Yes, well, absolutely. Well, Caesar dressing, one of the base flavorings, is in fact no, anchovies. And nobody knows it, be frank. Nobody they knows don't it. read the ingredients. Yeah, now they're going to look and they go, oh, there's fish in here. I've eaten it for 50 years, but now that I know the little guys are in there. Yeah. Yeah. What is that called? You know, it, it just, it, I, you know, it's perception. It's like Worcestershire sauce. Wor 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 Worcestershire sauce? He can't say that. I can, I, can give you the, I can give you the Asian version. Soy sauce. But if you put that in a, a few different little uh, dishes, it, it really brings out a little bit of the flavor. It, it does. Yes, it, it does. does. It does. You know, and we, we need to add flavors, so we're not even going to delay. Uh, we are actually thrilled uh, episode 25 here, and we said we were going to do something special we were talking about on the road, and this opportunity literally fell into our laps. Um, Thankfully. So after, after making sure we paid the right bribes, uh, spoke with the right people, yep. and then begged and pleaded on our hands and knees for hours, started crying in the checkout aisle at Walmart. Um, she she self checkout. She relented and said, "Okay, all right, I'll, I'll give you a few minutes." No, uh, we have a uh, young lady here, and she is a uh, local girl, uh, graduated from UB, and then moved to New York City. And she's been involved in theater and and plays, and um, she she still lives in New York City, but she happens to be visiting, and she didn't expect to be ambushed, but we did. We have. Katie Osborne with us. Good morning, Katie. How are you? Good morning, Frank. Hello, Carl. Good it morning. It is such a thrill and honor to be here. Thank you. And uh, You're way too kind with those. She, with, she with hasn't opening. read our history at all. Right. <laughs> I, okay. But thank you for that. You know, we do come from a common uh, history, Frank, as we well. Do. We, we do. do. Uh, you know, nepotism in the arts does uh, prevail even now. Uh, Frank and I are cousins. Uh, you know, as the Buffalo tale, when you come back to Western New York, you are greeted by family and friends, whether you like it or not. Absolutely. But it is the city of good neighbors, so I'm always thrilled to come back to Western yeah. New York. I, I walked into uh, Coffee and Stone yesterday, and uh, the owner, Bill, came out. And he goes, hey, do you know who that is? And I turned around, and of course, you, you cannot mistake the beauty of an Osborne. You just can't. And, uh, you know, whether whether you find that sexist or not, a beautiful uh, girl, uh, the, the, of course, with the uh, classic Irish red hair. Now, you you were here, you went to UB, and it, it led to things. Uh, what did you take at UB? What were you doing there? Yeah, I mean, besides, you know, Frisbee, lunch, and the obligatory liberal arts courses. Oh, well, you know... I was actually not that cool, so Frisbee was not in the works, but I was 
an arts major, so, you know, in the arts tradition, you know, they stuffed the weird arts kids in their own little building on campus, and we did so many things. <laughs> well deserved, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the Center for the Arts. <laughs> but them um, from the herd. <laughs> arts kids, you're over there. Yep. We we were we couldn't even get cell phone service back in the day in the basement. Um, so they really put us in that incubation um, uh, period when we were in uh, school. But what I love so much about my UB education, all jokes aside, is that UB is a research one university. So now as a theater professional, I have the perspective of taking research and applied theory and uh, creating theater out of that. So a lot of my work is not only applied practice, but um, it does have a lot of academic theory involved with it as well. So not to date you or guess your age, but your graduating class in, what was your graduating class? In what major? Yes. So I graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theater Performance from okay. University of Buffalo. Um, I was the class of 2014. Um, I, <laughs> I... Everybody's counting on their fingers right now. 14, 15, 16, 17. But you don't know that she entered the college at the age of six. Right. It's true. It's very true. Yes. Very nice. So, um, so you took from Buffalo... Uh, your degree, and then you went where? What what moved you down to New York City, or was there several stops along the way? What happened? Sure, yeah, so um, I graduated from UB, and I went straight to New York City, um, got a day job. I graduated in uh, June of 2014. By August, I was already in New York City, and I just knew that I had to be there and go for it and, uh, you know, put, put my talents out into the world. Now, there, of course, you, like all um, stories of, of building into the theater and into the arts, it, it's, not an, it's not an instant thing. It's not an overnight thing. So, of course, you had side work. And you were just talking about something that you were doing when you got to New York City that is is going to uh, maybe surprise a few people. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and let, let me set, set the stage, pun intended. Um, that was good. Uh, Kate, Katie, Kate, Katie, is, Katie is, is slender, fair-skinned, bright red hair, um, looks, looks very much like, uh, like she should be in ballet. Tell, t tell, tell our, our listeners, I almost yes. said viewers, but, you know, uh, Tell us about that job. I, I love that because that also has a local Buffalo connection. Um, so I was telling my, my dear cousin, Frank, uh, that I rode and owned a Harley Davidson Sportster Custom. So I used to work uh, summers when I was at UB at Buffalo Harley Davidson, right on Bailey Ave when they still had that. Um, and when I moved to New York City, my first day job ended up being at New York City Harley-Davidson because I had that wonderful experience here. So it was a unique time in my life where I was a young actor selling motorcycles on Broadway in Soho, Manhattan. It was a time to be alive. If we had to put that into percentage of population, folks, there would be a decimal point 
<laughs> followed by 17 zeros with possibly a one. Yeah. I mean, the, of course, people people live as, as they age, as Carl and I have done, but gracefully, I hope. Yes. Uh, we have preconceived notions. So you hear Harley, you think, you know, giant bike, big saddlebags, uh, you know, the, the, the braided hair going down the back, yes. um, a couple of folds, a leather vest, uh, skeins of tattoos, and a pack of Luckies tucked up into the sleeve. And that couldn't be further from the <laughs> truth. My goodness. If if Katie was to go on the, I'm, here, I'll date myself, folks. And many of you remember. Is the, that because nobody else old, will date you? Yes. Okay. It's because it, the old TV show, What's My Line? Oh, my. Would she win? She would stand up oh. there and just, they would they would have no clue. Doubtless. Doubtless. You would, you know. Yeah, you, you get the Walk two burly out of the guys on there. With the bags you know. of money, because no one would guess. You get a big no. guy that goes up there. Hi, my name's Katie, and yeah. I sell Harley Davidsons in New York City. <laughs> and then you get, you know, the accountant. Hi, my name is Katie, and I sell Harleys. And you get, Hi, I'm Katie. I sell Harley Davidsons. They'd be like, Oh no way! So that's what a great story so far, folks. If, stay tuned. You've got to listen to the rest of this. Go ahead. We're getting five star. We're getting five. So okay. So you, we you interrupted so, you. I, we, I apologize. We, we do that. It's kind of our job. It's in our contract. Please interrupt the guests mid thought to try to throw them off. It's it's kind of a, our mantra as well. Isn't that our family love language? I think it is. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that's just the way we communicate. And I, I can slander the Irish because I am Irish and say yes, yes, yes. we do. Yes. Um, so so now. I, there were, there's other things that you were doing in work, and, and we're going to get to theater part, but you really, you have to be driven. You have to support yourself. Yes. The, the term starving artist is not I, cliche. It just Oh, it is. is not. I still identify as a starving artist uh, quite a bit. We have snacks. <gasps> oh, my gosh. But we even have, oh, dare wow. I say, candy bars. Uh, oh my goodness! Leftover from Halloween, but, no doubt. You know, of course. I mean, now, yes. now there's more struggles than just okay. I have to support this. I right. have to have, you know, the money coming in. I got to pay for my food and so on. T tell us a little bit about that. Not everybody's familiar with that unless they've been through it, and not everybody's yes. successful on the other end. Right. And I. So this is part of the journey of moving to New York City. I firmly believe that it is a beautiful place to be, but you have to have a purpose to be there because it is a city that uh, it will push you out if you do not fight to be there. Um, so over the years, I have worked multiple, multiple jobs in just about every industry you can imagine as the typical day job of an actor or the survival job, as it is often known. Um, and some of my survival jobs have been uh, separate careers of their own, uh, such as I actually went to graduate school and went into theater education. So I actually have a K through 12 teaching license here in New York State uh, with a specialization and certification in theater particularly. So I was able to, over the years, apply my knowledge in, and able to share it with the community and worked in underserved uh, communities and Title I schools in the New York City public school system. So I have a very uh, broad range of life experiences that I've not only experienced but have also witnessed in others. And I believe that has really brought a lot of richness to the storytelling and the art that I am a part of because really it is about the human experience and, and connecting with other humans. 
And, um, you know, in a city with millions, you see so much life just stepping out your door. Um, but it's, it really isn't always easy. I've probably moved 15 times in the last 10 years alone being in that city with uh, the uh, challenges of housing now in this current market. Uh, COVID really set the market in a uh, particular way. So there was a, you know, we're seeing a resurgence now and, and rent is, is almost inaccessible for artists such as myself. Um, and it is truly a shame because so much of our culture is driven by, by people who want to give of themselves yeah. uh, in that way. Performances, yes. whether you're singing, dancing, you know, unless you've got a very big sponsor or some people that are helping you out along the way, it, it seems like the, the struggle would be real and almost impossible for more people to get into that line of work or into yeah. that profession. Absolutely. It, it, just, it just would be daunting to face just the cost of New York City and then, you know, work at probably a sub-minimum wage and, and make it work for very long. I'm a uh, I'm an avid reader of biographies, and uh, some of the biographies from 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 actors, from uh, comedians, especially. It, it's you touched on this. There is their art and perspective evolves through stages of suffering. Yes. Um, the 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 biographies on on folks like uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, George Burns, he he did an autobiography, and and this this suffering. He George Burns, he lost his wife after four years of marriage, uh, and became became a, uh, a widower before Gracie Allen. But all these different things serve to build. And I want your perspective. And this this is a deep question, and I'm trying not to ambush you with this one. How much does the suffering connect to the evolution, not just of your person? but of, of your ability to perform and your ability to connect to an audience from the stage? Mm. Oh, that is a beautiful question, and I feel honored to answer that. Um, so I think that in the context of struggle or challenge, um, that there is a wonderful opportunity to... Uh, find gratitude in the moment. And I believe that that is really at the heart of being a live theater artist is actually being able to connect with the moment and the truth. So even the moments of conflict and challenge in my own personal life, they actually expand my resiliency to be able to connect at a deeper level and hold that emotion on stage, which is a really beautiful gift because I think uh, when we see stories, whether it is on the stage, film, or TV, that we as humans learn something um, from that experience of witnessing. And there's a mirroring that happens that is so beautiful that you know, you can see yourself in another character and learn from their example. Um, and so I think that because uh, theater itself is written around conflict and 
humans trying to overcome that conflict to connect. That the more I experience that in my own life, it just helps me tell bigger and better stories. So it helps you, well, going through the tragedies help you expand and go for the better moments in life. Yes. So we, being happy about you know, what your craft is and sharing all that. So the struggle and the pain and all of the bumps and hurdles and flaming hoops along the way help you, you know, forge your craft. Steel sharpens steel, as, as they say. But is that a necessary part of becoming, you know, an, uh, a good artist, performing artist? And no matter what genre you pick, you have to go through that to get to the other side? Absolutely. I do not believe that suffering is necessary, uh, nor is it something that an artist should seek out. I believe that, you know, you should always go for the, for the dream and, and keep carrying that torch and that light. Um, but I do believe that part of the human experience is experiencing those challenges and not avoiding the discomfort, I believe, is that key. It's that ability to stand in that discomfort and hold that tolerance and bravery for um, speaking the truth. Because I, I think that a lot of people have truths inside of them that remain um, and sometimes don't go, uh, they're not spoken of um, in life because we, we like to protect parts of ourselves and yes, we're absolutely. afraid to be vulnerable. Oh, sure. yeah. um, so I, I believe that having a space where we can like share in that way in a, in a safe way um, through the theater is amazing because you know we have this collective audience experience we're no longer alone in our human experience in that way so the only time an actor is really themselves is when they're by themselves mm. because they, they there's a, another facade mm. another layer that they put on themselves to shield themselves from others, the view and the perception, because perception is your reality. So if your reality is of some person, like, well, they're, they're fantastic and great, but then every once in a while you hear about an actor or a performer or, you know, a noted person or somebody, and they, they'll say something very negative about them, but then the public perception is, right. wow, she is so wonderful. She's so great. Oh, my goodness. I, I could not believe that about her or him or whatever the case may be. Yeah, so, you know, they're definitely, that is something that is unusual uh, to deal with. And, uh, you know, just having a, a platform where you're in the public image, it has, there's a level of responsibility to it because you are, whether you want to or not, because of your, your place, you are a cultural influencer in some sort of ways. And I believe that taking the responsibility of that is important. And I prefer actors and uh, professionals who really use the craft to live in authenticity rather than um, like, you know, having this perception or of an image that they want to sell you. Um, so, I'm very, I, I, I always strive to be truthful and authentic because I feel that that's actually more aligned with who I am as a performer, where my, my job is to tell the truth. Uh, my job is uh, not to 
hand you a like fantasy or a pretend world. Like my job as an actor is to just tell the truth of the imaginary moment. Right. And with with so many plays and with so many movies that have come out in forever, there always are people that are playing a part. Yes. And and those folks that can play that part, you know, whether genuinely good or bad, will depend on what people will say about the, the play as a whole or the body of work of the entire cast and ensemble. It's like a it's it's like I went to a musical performance. It was at a small theater, and there was one person in the group that was not playing up to the standards of the rest of them, and it was a, uh, a saxophone player. I'll just give an example. I won't say who it really was, but it was one of the players. It was a 10-piece orchestra. It was not at a wedding venue, but it was a celebration. I'll say that much. And the saxophone player was off-key, off his mark, off-timing, and really wasn't prepared for what his assignment was going to be. Uh, when they came back from their second set, that person was not with them. So that shows that collectively that group kind of like moved on from that person. Have you experienced that in, in your own uh, your own dealings with people that somebody just wasn't up to it and you had to speak to them about that and just say, Oh, know, sure. You know, I mean, come on, we, we've got a performance to do here. The expectations are high and you're not, you're not with us and you're not there yet. So how yeah. do you coach somebody on that? If you're telling the truth, what you just said, that's your job. So how do you deal with somebody that's not up to that standard of a high level performance? Well, I think that uh, that's a, a great question. Um, in addition to being an actor and a playwright, I am also a producer. So as a producer, someone who is, you know, managing the talent and the designers and, you know, helping to organize um, the production coordination, you, there, there are so many people who love the idea of this world, but don't realize the discipline it actually takes and the consistency to actually make it work. So it does require a lot of vetting and, you know, we have auditions. I like to work with people who I know because everybody has a different perspective. And, um, you know, I still, I love working with my UB people. To this day, professionally, I will pull them in for projects because the um, the professionalism and the way we approach it is um, it's at a different professional level than I've met even with other people in the industry, which which says something about just the incredible value of the UB uh, theater department. So that's a comfort level. It is. Um, and then, you know, as a producer, I'm still, depending on who I hire, um, you know, their level of professionalism may be different. Um, and it is my job as a producer to help them guide through that practice. And if, if they cannot step up to the plate, then we either need to rearrange a position or um, find a replacement because people can be enthusiastic, but if it's really about showing up and can you do this work? Yeah, and it's, 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 you, you mentioned something very interesting. It's, it's you, you can't have ego and yet you have to deal with ego but mm -hmm. you can't have ego but you have to deal with it so yes. it really is a juggling act you it mentioned is. a key term yes 
And and this is this is one of these these, these hot button terms that she responsibility. We talk about uh. Uh, the, the classic is is art imitates life, and then there's there's the perspective that life is somehow imitating art because theater and movie and entertainment and media often now we see it it sets the tone for life instead of the opposite and and with responsibility there's that's a very personal and and a daunting responsibility how I mean. You're 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 doing a uh, let's just say you're doing a, a movie that is based in fantasy, but there's still responsibilities to the audience to obviously the responsibilities to entertain and so on. But what about truth, common cause, um, the the effect on uh, public perception? How, how do you gauge it? How you deal with that? Just expand on that because that's such yeah. a huge <clears throat> term. Yes, it, it absolutely is. Um, so theater has always had huge influence from its very roots. Um, so not to get too nerdy, but in theater history in 439 BC, when theater was created, it was a festival for the god of Dionysus. But the, uh, as you were talking about, like this idea of ensemble in the chorus, um, the way that they moved in unison together was actually to model uh, the Greek military power by the way they were moving on stage. Um, and so a lot of like the history that we carry culturally is it's art, but there is influence with that. And I always want to be conscious of what I am giving with these stories. I want stories that will uplift and unite. Um, my One of my favorite professors, Stephen McKinley Henderson, who is a Buffalo actor and local as well as Shout out international. Shout out Steve. Yes, Steve. I love him so much. And I had the gift and privilege of training with him. He said, we do not do this theater to entertain. We do this to educate and enlighten. And so what I have uh, really pursued in my career is to have theater be a form of activism and advocate for those who feel like they don't have a voice or a space or a platform. And I want to uh, you know, create visibility around lives and unique uh, ways of living that may not be common in our culture. So. I think that is really uh, what I'm moving towards is like creating more inclusion and authentic representation within the industry as well. You mentioned theater history, and I'm yeah. just going back to um, a documentary that I saw, and I, I had to do more research on it after that because I found it fascinating. Uh, when you look at uh, you know, the creative life, when, when you get to Africa and you see the origins of man, and dance is not a dance. It, it literally is, this is how they, they taught their young, this is how they tell the stories, and there's a form and a function to it. There's a process to it, much like you know scenes in a play as it goes through. So it's really not confined to just the spoken word. There's the physical presence, and the physical presence can be there completely without it. I mean, let's jump way forward and get obtuse. 
Charlie Chaplin's voice was never heard until his last two movies, last three, I think. Uh, but yet that performance was there. The colorization wasn't there. These were black and white films, so it wasn't, you know, we have this wonderful sunset or, or you know, we have this, this, this brilliant, there's, there's, no, there's no peacock or anything. So when, you, when you're getting the physical performance of this, there's, there's body language, there's, there's physical challenges, there's emotion tied to that, and I'll touch on the emotion in a minute, actually. Uh, tell us about developing, I'll just call it the presence without mm. voice. Oh, I love that so much. Um, <laughs> I really do. This is, this is just uh, the presence without voice. Um, and what uh, this really, I, I, I feel so lit up by this question because this really attaches to what I'm exploring in the work that I'm currently creating. And I, I want to say that in creating the presence, it first starts with the breath and connecting with your breath. Um, so what most people don't understand is that true acting uh, comes from a place of relaxation. So acting is actually a very physically demanding art form. Uh, similar to dance. Uh, at UB, we were the theater and dance department um, because there's so much crossover between that, that physicality and that, that life. So I am currently writing a play called Breathe With Me. And Breathe With Me is a, a play that actually does focus on what is our experience of breath as humans and how we can use it. And um, within the play, you see um, there's some classroom scenes, uh, which may be a little bit reminiscent, <laughs> but you actually see... Kind of mirroring yes. some of your experiences, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> maybe. Um, but you will see there are examples within the play of like how the characters experience the training of the breath, too, as the actors. Because I wanted to give the audience a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain of how we understand our breath. So when you understand your breath, the rhythm of it, um, like the, you can really adjust uh, like your whole physical um, uh, way of carrying yourself. And when you adjust the physical, you can bring the emotion because you know we, we create the behavior. Jumping through the into physicality. My next question already. It's I, it's almost like a segue, but it's not scripted. I swear. It's not scripted. We, I am we, a not, little. We're not capable of <laughs> scripting any of this. I'm, I'm it's still, impossible. It, there's just no way I could write but, all this. But, but we it's, might just take a moment, and you, you mentioned that you're working on something right now, and so how could people, the folks out there, follow you along in this in this in this journey of of creating this? Thank you, Carl. What yes, you thank you. What do you have you. to give to us? Is there any place we can go look up Google? You've got an Instagram account, a Facebook page. Absolutely. How, how, how do we follow along with this? Well, I mean, well, just for you and Frank, I do have stickers for you. So you can be in the cool club after the show. We but belong. <laughs> Finally, we belong. You well, do. Yes. Uh, but for the rest of the audience, we do have uh, all our social media. So we do have 
our Twitter, we have our Instagram and Facebook. I would, I think our Instagram is easiest to find. It is at Breathe With Me Official. Um, so that's B-R-E-A-T-H-E-W-I-T-H-M-E Official. So O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. I think I spelled correctly. I have trouble. I, I checked. I okay. I, I, I checked. <laughs> yes, and we, pro we Being promised. An educator, I did yeah. check that. Yes. We promised yes. Katie no math questions, but we did not promise spelling. We did questions. not. We did not. And your Very well. next word is anti-disestablishmentarianism, and you must use it in a sentence. No, um, <laughs> I was. We, we talked about about the. You talked about the physical stage presence. Yes. Um, you talked about the responsibility in communicating, and we 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 kind of missed one of the big parts in there. And uh, of course, again, being being a biography nerd, uh, you know, I read Audrey Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn, Clark Gable, even Steve Martin, their biographies. And we talk about the physical emotion to draw through that. We we've, we've seen the close-ups. Uh, we've all seen Gone with the Wind, and the tears just 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 seem to come forth, and the emotion is gripping in the face. And I think it was, it was uh, Catherine Hepburn that said it uh, best, and I have to paraphrase because I don't have the quote. She goes, well, I just, I put myself in the place where I've already been that was very emotional, and I think about that. And um, there, there was another mention to that, and it was actually, uh, Steve Martin said it, and was, people don't think of him as, as a theater, but he's, he really is a comedian. Uh, comedy itself is, is very gripping. But he said, "What draws them to the script is the fact that they connect with something that was emotional that they relate to in their lives, and then that's what draws them. They bring them back. So, bringing the emotion, it's more than I know my lines, I know my rhythm, I know my body language. How do you bring the emotion into that? I mean, truly connect so that the audience, who really is supposed to be the fly on the wall." How do you bring the emotion to connect to a character, be able to communicate it, but not see the fly on the wall? Magic. Magic. I will say that. It is absolute <laughs> magic. And that's why it's, it's very much a craft, right? Um, and uh, I think that what you mentioned with um, Catherine Hepburn with, with the emotional memory and going back, that is a technique that we don't commonly use anymore with the emotional memory um, because of the psychological dangers of that. Um, so what we do is, as actors, we, we our currency is our imagination. So we use these beautiful words uh, as in the method we call the magic if. And so we can create uh, circumstances that we feel that we have a personal connection to and might relate to, but we're not doing the psychological, like, uh, painful thing of going back into that memory because you don't have as much control over it um, mentally or physically. Whereas if I'm creating a new memory that I can relate to and uh, step into it, um, but uh, we, uh, yeah, so, <laughs> sorry. I lost my train of thought a little bit. 
No, um, that's fine. You're allowed. I'm, yes. <laughs> You're allowed to. You're allowed. Yes. Uh, Carl and I, yeah. part of our job description also happens to be throw the guest off track. And right. See if they can I love that. See, if they, can, see yes. if they can circle back to it. Uh, but I, uh, yes. So uh, in circling back, in creating the behavior, um, this is, I'll bring back a little bit of the magic. So every time we go and look at a scene, we have to find the character's objective, aka what's their goal? What do they want? What do they need? What are they fighting for? And each scene, whether uh, it is apparent or not, usually has a conflict. So once we can identify what our character might want or uh, uh, you know what they're fighting for, when we identify the challenge, that gives us something to work against, right? And so our job as actors is really to do that in-between work of finding the how to overcome that challenge within the imaginary circumstance. And it's really in doing truthfully that you create that emotional truth. So it's not really about like, I'm feeling an emotion and it's right here. That's, that's She's acting right here for us. Oh, that is not that acting. That, that is unscripted brilliance. Oh, gosh. Well, it was yeah, not brilliant. We were getting our own uh, matinee. Do you no. do you feel that while you were in your in in like your own headspace, yeah. and you're on stage performing, or mm -hmm. you are performing within uh, a comfortable group of people that you normally would be you know collaborating with uh, for years, or the new collaboration that you're setting yourself up with with other people, uh, common goal, common you know everybody's in the rowboat, going the same direction, what have you, fill in the blank. It's it's called. Being in character. Yeah, Carl. being in character. Being in character. Do, do you find yourself having to fall back upon another personal experience to help get you through it? Or is it just, I'm just going forward. I'm gonna run up the hill, you know, carrying these these 10 boulders and I'm gonna and I'm gonna get there. So what what's your motivation for when something is not going very well? How what's your motivation to push through it and, and get to the end? As an actor or a producer? Because I, I I would say as an actor, for, first yes. as an actor, okay. and a producer is always not in front of the audience. They're behind the scenes doing other things, yes. but as the as the actor your, yourself, how is that? Your end game, how are you getting there? Yeah. Um, so what's so much fun about acting is uh, it is so much of a process that no work you can never approach the same exact way. So it's finding a new formula um, because it's like creating new life, right? This character exists with or without me. It might be on paper, but my duty as an actor is to give life to the text and the word. Um, so I have multiple approaches on how I can approach that. Um, and it, it, there could be so many different challenges. There could be challenges in blocking. The, if I have to handle a difficult prop, like I could have fight choreography. Um, I could have dance. You can throw almost anything at me. And that is part of the actor is I have to do that problem solving um, to figure out how I can get myself to certain moments. And, you know, directors certainly help guide within that experience as well. Like we all have ideas and that's what's, what I love so much about theater. It's a collaborative experience where every person 
has a say. Like the lighting designer can change a total definition of a moment. Alfred Hitchcock was the, yes. the master oh, at that. <laughs> if you, so if you, if you watched an Alfred Hitchcock movie, yeah. And it would all just be monochromatic. Uh, you, you would, you would not. It would not be a, a great film. Yeah. But the way he changed a lot of his scenes, and the way he was able to bring out a character, like what they would step into a room, or they would walk into the light, or a, somebody coming out of a shadow. It was all manufactured to highlight or to accentuate the scene and what was going on, which made him so successful through the yes. years. And and sometimes, like you just mentioned, the lighting director, it should not be overlooked because it is a key element. It's critical yes. to, a lot of, to a lot of shows, either in person or on film. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I just love about it. It's like there is no moment, there is no design choice that doesn't have some sort of thought and meaning yeah. behind it. Everything has meaning. So that's, that's one of my wonderful challenges as an actor is like, how do I show the audience the meaning? without putting it in their face because uh you know we often say it's it's we do so much preparation as actors like there's so much work that directors never no one besides the actor itself they never see it we do a, so much text analysis and then our job is to be so in the moment when you're on stage that you release that and you're in a state of flow where you're discovering the words in the moment as the character, as you're speaking them, even though you as the actor have to know word perfect what you're saying. It's a duality of your brain where you're like release versus everything is highly controlled down to your breath and the words. So that, so how does that relate to your current project on a personal level then? Ooh, yes. Well, it is all about that duality and, um, the invisible versus the visible and how that process of duality and the training as an actor and learning about the breath um, actually helps the character stay alive within the show itself. So there's the sustaining factor in this character's life is actually having the ability to breathe as an actor because there's so much more awareness to, um, to her breath. Um, and there's an interesting element within Breathe With Me because it not only explores breath as like a human and the emotional and, and the actor sense, but it also examines it in contrast with our definition of medical breath. And um, I felt like it was really important to tell this story at this time because I think since 2020, we've all had a different experience of understanding how breath works and how it's influenced us as a society. Oh, a lot of, a lot of people of certainly learned how important it really was. Absolutely. Yeah. You brought up something that uh, I, I did want to discuss. Um, and that, that is now, of course, the world changed uh, with with COVID spreading the way it was, uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a new uh, disease, but it was definitely new to us and in a new format. And you're talking about all these groups of people getting together, doing performances, and so on. And this this is one aspect of civilization that changed. But you're in New York. I mean, there's there's Broadway, there's plays, there's movie production, uh, there's there's small coffee shops, and so on. But all of these individuals were suddenly out of a job. There was, there was no getting together. And 
I think it's fair to say uh, that artists get fed by performing, not just by food. It is really part of what sustains them. COVID happened. I've got it on the calendar. I know that we were shut down here, I believe it was on the uh, 17th or 18th of March back in 2020. So let's just put you on the 18th of March. Broadway closes. The cafes close. The little uh, play, play shops close. Tell us about that. Oh, I remember that vividly. It happened, I believe, a couple days earlier because New York City was more of an epicenter. And um, it took a few days for COVID to actually be tracked to Erie County. I know. Um, but in, in the city, um, you know, you could tell it was there. There was such a tension. Um, so in part of the challenge of my unique identity is that I am not only an actor who uses my uh, voice and my breath for physical performance in my career, I also have the added challenge of living with cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic condition which highly affects the lungs and it puts us at high risk for uh, COVID-19. Um, so I had the added challenge of being an actor, knowing that Broadway was shutting down and uh, feeling much more at risk. So I had a <laughs> quite the 2020 year. I think I moved about three times in that course. I did come back to Western New York a little bit. Um, my father is a healthcare professional, so when I went to stay with him, he realized very early on that he was going to have to have contact with COVID and uh, was like, I don't think it's safe for you to be here. Um, I ended up staying with family in rural Vermont um, for a time. And then I um, ended up- A beautiful up, part of the world. It absolutely, absolutely is. So. And I felt very safe there, yeah. uh, which was great. Um, but then- after a couple months of living there, I was like, oh, yes, all my medical care is in New York City. Um, oh. <laughs> and so is my health insurance. Uh, so I moved to the Hudson Valley, actually, um, uh, for a very, very short time because I could have driving access to the city. Um, and I was, like, in a waiting period this entire time of, like, when's, when's the industry going to come back? What are we going to do? Um, in the meantime, when I was in this lockdown period, I was getting creative of like, how can I still perform? How can I act? And so um, the public theater in New York actually came up with a Shakespeare challenge very early on. And so every single week they would give a text and say, create something new out of this, interpret this. So I was in the throes and I was like, I can't stop working. Uh, so I would... Uh, text my friends and break up the script and then they would record themselves performing and then I would do video editing of these Shakespeare monologues to kind of make it look like we were in the same space even though we were in different parts of the country. Sure. But it was so unique because we had to act without being in the same room um, and later that summer I got to perform in an original play but then we transferred to Zoom and we had virtual backgrounds and then we had to like act with another person um you know one guy was in LA and I was in New York and we were playing a scene together for a live audience it was 
so interesting how we had to adapt our craft uh, for COVID. So those challenges actually helped. They did. They gave us a new, um, a new way of going about the industry. Like it actually created a little bit more accessibility with the audition experience since it wasn't, you have to be there and you have to show up. Like mm -hmm. we do a lot of self tape auditions now or on zoom. A lot of production meetings are held on zoom readings. Um, and a lot of, and that's kept in process now where we keep those things um, because uh, you know, the industry is unique where our performers were not easily replaceable. Um, no. The and technology was there to help you. Yeah. Yes. And, and set changes with Zoom are much faster. They are. They are. They are. Now, this, so it really, in a way, and, and this is why I break because people are tired of hearing about COVID this, COVID yes. this, enough already. But this this really is very relative to this because this, it wasn't just Broadway, but because there was so many people, this was their day by day. It wasn't closing down a movie set for three months and, and taking a vacation. It put them out of work. But then out of this... And with the addition of the technology, things evolved from that, that it sounds like you're saying may have improved the craft and improved the accessibility and improved the audience. Is that fair to say? I, yes, I believe that it totally increased accessibility. And I, I, I think about reframing theater in a new way because of this experience. Um, it was so wonderful that I could share theater for the first time with family in Buffalo. Like my, my grandfather at the time was in his 90s and was still able to attend, um, you know, and for individuals like myself who are more high risk in the COVID, it is wonderful because I got to enjoy theater safely, be it from like the National Theater in London, they had a lot of streaming services or just the, you know, uh, friends who are doing regional theater like more locally like I just got more connected um and I'm actually utilizing that now in the way that I'm approaching breathe with me um because this is a this is also a a, a play that does um uh reach the disability community and in creating more accessibility to that we're we're already looking at how we can create virtual events hybrid events uh we're talking about when this gets off broadway and hopefully broadway to have a virtual viewing option so that people can feel safe and included in this experience no matter where they are the great debate well it's not a great debate but uh this is something that goes back and forth to the artist the importance of Performance versus paycheck. Ah, uh, why was again starving artist comes, comes yes. creeping back to mind. Yes, but go ahead. I want okay. I want your view on this. I don't believe that anybody should get into this industry if they are looking to make money. I truly believe that. The work that I do is more valuable than any dollar I will ever receive, and that the work has the ability to like surpass, you know, even my own life. Uh, you know, how many plays exist beyond the life of the playwright? I mean, th these are stories that can live on in humans. Like that, that is greater than any gold I could ever receive. So a lot of the work that I do, I take myself 
seriously as a professional? Does that mean I see a paycheck consistently from this industry? Not necessarily. I mean, even as a producer, that's the gamble. Like, no matter where you are in the line, it's, will I see the money? Uh, I don't know, but that's, that's not what we do it for. We, I, know, I don't do this for the fame. I do this because I believe that the human experience enriches the lives of others so much so. And you can tell by my smile, like, that is enough. I wish you could see the smile. Carl, that makes us artists. No, <laughs> is that? It does. You are. Because we don't see a dime for this, but no. we get a lot of joy out of it. I guess that makes us artists. We do. do we well, need SAG cards for this? I, I don't know. You know what? Or PAG, a podcast artist. Podcast artist. American. PAG. PAG. Something. I don't know. PAG. Uh, something, some, something in there. Uh, you, they would, they would already be knocking on the door here at the studio if, if, if that was mandatory, though. That's why we don't publish the address. Right. Very vague. <laughs> yes, you, you hit on something several times. It, you, you've touched on it, and then we've expanded out of it. And this is, uh, I, I call it the hidden cancer, and mm. and I, I've referred to this before. Uh, COVID had an effect on it. Uh, there is is more visibility when somebody is famous and on film when this is the case, but it's not confined to just the stage. But mental hygiene, mental hygiene mm. in in general, this I, I call it the hidden cancer because you don't see it. It's not it's not a heart attack. It's not a stroke. It's not a laceration. Can't point at it. Right. And you, you can't, can't say, "Oh, look." And and the uh, not every person, but that that. When you, when you see somebody having a heart attack, you, you run up to help. You see somebody uh, crying in the aisle, and we kind of hide from it. But it is, it is something that profoundly affected um, the community. You're suddenly, all of New York, you're suddenly unemployed. You're there, there's no paycheck. There's no performance. There's, there's no outlet. And people that deal with it on varying levels, and there's many varying levels, they were really challenged by this. And you were... You had contact with people who were touched by this, and I'm not going to lead you in. I'm just going to leave that topic on the table and let you take it. Yeah. <clears throat> that is, yeah, I, I feel the, the heaviness of that um, because it, and I'm glad you're bringing it up because it really truly is not spoken of enough, is um, the mental health of, our community is, it is suffering right now. And I, I, I think that a lot of people can acknowledge that as well. Um, and is what it, I- is, Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. is it because it's more prevalent or because now it's okay or getting better or okay to talk about it and to acknowledge it and to help people who are maybe that they might not be reaching out for assistance or help, but at least people are more comfortable with, with doing and talking about that. Yeah, no, I love the way you phrase that because that's that leads into what I was going to say was I really think it is it's, it's about that um, isolation versus community, right? So what you were saying about oh, like you know, it's now more socially acceptable to talk about it. We're losing the stigmatization around it. And I think that is taking people out of that isolated place. And probably why in COVID um, it was much more prevalent is because we were creating isolation for our own safety 
but uh, we as Children, humans, adults, every, yes, everybody, everyone yeah. felt isolated in that time. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of the repair work and the healing that we're doing right now is re-evaluating how we create community now. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I love uh, in my work talking about um, overcoming trauma and post-traumatic growth um, within the work um, because I want to give people a space where they can have a relationship with it um, without having to, I guess, uh, do too much of the heavy work on their own. Again, like a space where they're in a community where this is just spoken of. And when we speak of things and we don't keep them in the corner, like it's the light and the illumination that can bring that sense of more stability and I want to say peace into people's lives and connection. Um, so, and I always feel like that's been a huge part of theater, I know, is seeing the dysfunction in the family and seeing these mental health moments uh, that we might recognize within our own family, but never speak of. We see those on stage, like, you know, long day's journey into night. Um, you know, we see families. And I think sometimes when we see those on stage, it can create those little wake up moments and those bells in our own life to say, oh yes, this is something I can identify and see. What can I do about it in my own life? It, and that, that's pretty key because we, we talked earlier about this. There's, there's no cure, there's no shot, there's no pill, and it's okay, it's gone away, and you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it anymore. For, the, for these people, and there are countless numbers that are dealing with it privately, either through, through shame or, or lack of access. Yes. It's, it's just ongoing treatment. Theater has been connected now recently, more recently, with uh, treatments with Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and dementia and mental hygiene. Yes. And it's expanded out to that. Have you had that, that direct contact, that, that experience, that, that, well, yes. I'm stammering, so. <laughs> absolutely, yes. I absolutely have had um, a lot of that experience with um, work I've created, but also how I've applied it in um, my own work, like how I was saying within the, the school system when I was teaching theater, one of the reasons I felt so called to do that was because I wanted middle school students uh, at this turning era where you start seeing these, these signs where mental illness might start showing at this time in their life, I wanted to give them some tools of expression um, and giving them a way to communicate and having a positive, healthy way to express quote unquote negative emotions. I don't think that there are negative emotions. I think there's emotions and we label them as such. And by walking in with middle schoolers saying, your emotions are healthy and they have a purpose. Here's how you can use them constructively and safely. Um, that, those are skills I want to teach every single person. Because uh, if, if you understand how to communicate your needs and your emotions, then it allows 
for greater connection and wholeness in your life. So going so going back in your own personal life, when yeah. you were younger, let's say before you were 10, between 5 and 10 is when you start really developing um, you know, a, a lot of more self-awareness and what's going on. And you kind of develop, you know, like, like social skills as far as like what you're capable of in those five years before you get to preteen, teenager status. Um, is that community well underserved as far as mental health goes to young kids between five and 10, let's say, and uh, are you working on anything or have you worked with anybody working on that as part of your, your ability to reach out and gather some information and put it back out there for people? Sure. Uh, yes. I'm, uh, as a K through 12 theater educator, I have had experience. I, I've created theater programs for uh, K through eight schools in Manhattan where I was teaching every single grade level. And, you know, with education, you do meet the student where they are developmentally. Um, so there are different skill sets that I would teach to a five to 10 year old versus a middle school student um, because of their cognitive ability and their grasp of language and their body awareness. Um, so there's so many things that I can do as an educator, um, depending on what a student needs, whether they're like, you know, sensory seeking and have like, a, you know, trouble understanding where their body is in space. Like I could give them tools to understand their body. Um, whereas like, you know, a five-year-old, you know, can I assist them in speaking a sentence like aloud to help them give confidence for other literacy things in school? So there's there's so much enrichment that uh, we can give students by creating accessibility to arts education. When you are talking about, you know, you, you, you obviously, you've taught in the public school system, you've taught children, you've brought them into theater. Um, and, and this isn't something that a lot, a lot of kids are exposed to. How is the response, how do, how do you get the, the young minds to start to uh, embrace this? And keeping the separation between reality and fantasy obviously is there, depending on the material. How do you bring them in? What inspires these kids to go, you know what, this is something I want to do? I love that. Um, well, again, with, with each age group, I, I look for buy-in for different uh, subjects or topics that the students might have interest in. Um, so to make it a little bit more uh, accessible for students who are like, eh, it's art, what do I want to have to do? Um, you know, and I was going into schools where they hadn't had any arts training whatsoever, so I was their first experience of an arts teacher. Um, so I really focus mo mostly on kind of what you would call character building or character development, which was how can I show up and practice being like the best self I can be um, and just getting them to think about their consciousness with how they're performing and showing up uh, within themselves. That, that's what I would do more so for a middle schooler. Like I trick them into theater. Like I just make it about themselves. <laughs> Um, As most educators, you do. used your acting skills and your position to influence. Uh, it's shocking! It's just what we were just talking about. <laughs> yes, um, actually, I have a great. Uh, well, you know my my uncle John Osborne. Um, my uncle John and I have actually created off. Broadway theater together as well in New York City. And uh, Uncle John and I created a, 
a piece in 2019 called Freeze Response, uh, which was actually based off of something we've also been talking about. Um, it was based off of uh, re healing from trauma. So it was uh, loosely inspired by the book Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. And uh, my uncle is wonderful as a theater maker, but doesn't have a lot of performance experience. But because I had him in my direction, because I was the director, I still got him on stage. And he does not know to this day how I was able to trick him to being on stage as a performer during that experience. Well, I don't know who tricked who, but <laughs> you may... Uh, you that may was your perception that you tricked him. You may or may not uh, have heard uh, in, in his... Uh, College years, he actually did uh, do a record with his brother Dan. Oh, I know of this record. Yes, I have based, it on forty-five. Yes, you have the forty-five, and it's all about the the chicken, wings. chicken wing, the chicken wing song. Yes. yes. So, um, and there's you can hear the theatrics and the giggles in the background almost because of that. The backup uh, singers are known as the Celery Sticks. The Celery Sticks, celery of sticks. course, because uh, Celery sings not as well as anchovies. No, well. But, <laughs> But but it does sing. Now producing for producing family that that had to be its own little art craft in in and of itself. You know it's it's great. Is it easier? No, not at all. Because uh, you like you know uh, he's my uncle and I'm the niece and we have these these roles within our family and then when you. We, we were stepping outside of the role. So um, I was director and co-producer uh, as well as actor on that piece. And uh, my uncle was the one who had the idea, so he invited me in. And to this day, he was like, Katie, uh, th I did not know how much work that was going to be. Thank you. I was like, yes. Um, well, John, but, John's never been afraid of work. We know no, he has not. Um, but it, it brought us like with a new respect within our relationship too, which was so cool. And to this day, uh, we still have a writers group that runs on the weekends um, by both my uncle and I. So it is really it's it's a gift to be able to share this experience with family because uh, theater is so unique that very few people truly understand the complex inside world of it. So. It's a nice little security blanket of moving all the way to New York City and still working with your uncle. You are evolving into, you're broadening, it's not evolving, it's not like it's a change, it's an addition to, but now, because you mentioned this, now you are involved uh, in an independent film. Yes. And that changes or it's the same and there's a camera? I already oh. kind of know the answer, but go ahead. <laughs> I love this so much, yes. Um, so it is very different from uh, theater, but also has so much of the same attributes. I still prefer theater because I like the movement and the arc and living through the piece. Uh, when you're on film, you are working in about 30-second segments, um, essentially, and, and it's very technical um, and actually much smaller um, at, from an actor standpoint, uh, whereas you're working for a camera and a screen versus, you know, a 1,400-seat house. Your energy has to be just pulled back. Um, so there's, it's just a different uh, transference of skills. Now, the addition of an audience when you're doing live, mm. and you can't cut and and break and, and re-edit. 
Um, but but yet so many so many from uh, stage and screen they say you know what they they like going back to the roots. We see all these uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, you know wh whether you like him or not, uh, getting into getting onto Broadway and working on on the Broadway production of the producers. It's something he was drawn to, and he doesn't want to go back to film now. Mm -hmm. well, give me some insight on that. Why why do something that is there, there's there's no cut, there's no secret. This is this is on. Yes, because that's where the art form lives and was created. Uh, you know, this is, it's, I mean, theater existed for long before uh, any of us have. You know, like I said before, 439 BC. So I think there's something. I think I saw that play. Did you see that play? <laughs> I, I think once, but twice. You auditioned for the original version, I'm pretty sure. I did. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. We have to interject solely to that. make sure everybody's awake. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Can you, wait, what was my line of thought? It was. Thanks, Frank. Uh, okay. Sorry. Uh, we have somebody. This is theater, so we, we can bring yes. it up to your line. Great. Why I love theater more than film, it's because it really focuses on being so present in the moment and you get to just live and breathe as that character. So it just feels so much more cohesive and whole. And, uh, you know, I love being in character and following the arc, knowing that that's going to happen in two hours. Whereas like, if I'm on a film set, I could go in at five in the morning for hair and makeup and not shoot my scene until 1 p.m. where it's like, and I have maybe three minutes or something like that, uh, depending on my role. And that's it. Like I could be waiting for 12 hours and work three minutes. So a lot of the energy, it just doesn't get released. And the other thing is when you're in film, a lot of the storytelling happens in the editing. So I feel that when you're in theater, you have a lot more artistic control for no matter what position you're in. So you really have more autonomy in your storytelling. Um, and there's just something about uh, that I think we can really appreciate more so having gone through COVID of not being able to see people in person Something about the live element uh, just brings so much life to the piece and so much more connection. Um, and we have so many screens in our lives these days. Our lives seem to be <laughs> run by screens. And how beautiful is it when we can step away and just face each other? Yeah, one of the most positive experiences that we have is that when we have like a family dinner, we're going out, yeah. is that we don't bring the phones into the restaurant because it's too distracting. And when we do go some places, um, they ask you, you know, while your server is, you know, trying to be attentive to your needs and get your order, you know, could you please, you know, stay off your phone? We've had a lot of people that have you know, like walked us to our table and says, oh, when your server comes over, can you, can you please just set your phones down? Because they're trying to help you out. And, we see families, families of four or five, you know, like mom and dad and, and, and two kids or what have you, and they're all missing that opportunity to exchange ideas and have a conversation 
and be a family unit because they are looking at their phones and they're interested in everything but what's going on at that that table of four or five. And it's it's it, it's sad because they're losing their ability to communicate with people that they live with and they know very well. So when they do get out there into the bigger world, um, they lose that ability to communicate with, uh, with other people. And of course, theater is communication, which we all, you know, we talked about that. But when we're talking about communication in theater as opposed to movies and film, is that actresses and actors primarily have that ability to stop, you know, director will say cut, and they have a chance to, to rewind a little bit. When you're on the stage, there, there is no stop, you know, let me gather myself. It, you just keep going. Keep yes. going. I actually like to argue that um, the best actors are those ones trained in theater primarily. Um, I've seen film actors come to the Broadway stage, and they can't hold the space. They don't have the vocal or physical energy because they are used to that, the the screen coming to them versus they're going to the people. So I find that theater is much more of a giving. Right. Sure. Um, in that. And yeah, it's, it's more personal. Holding it's more back. personal than sitting in a movie theater and watching a performance on a screen than it is to be in an audience and interacting uh, even, you know, with a, you know, a short applause or a laugh or like a, you know, like some kind of like exclamation, you know, if something happens dramatic on stage. Uh, the actors feed off of that, I'm sure. I've seen that many times, you know, when we go to we go to plays and out. You, you can sense that, that give and take, you know, between the actor and, and the audience. So you're working on a play, screen, uh, film, uh, anything else in the works that uh, you want to plug right now and uh, put out there? Well, as I mentioned, we are working on Breathe With Me, which will be a play exploring the invisible uh, disability of cystic fibrosis and the experience of breath. Um, so we're very excited about that. That's going to be a full-length theatrical dramatic narrative. And I also, in the works, hopefully, um, you know, when we get it into post-production, I can share it all with you, but uh, with my dear friends at Cinema Veritas NYC, we do have another project work in the works for a feature-length film. Um, also uh, exploring a life with cystic fibrosis, um, which is fascinating. Um, and I'm really excited to share these stories because it really is about the gratitude for breath and the power of our words and what we do with our breath in our life. So naturally, we, you know, understanding that and the need to get that out and to make people more aware of that because it, it is hidden. You don't know it because it's not a obvious, you know, it's, it's not an obvious thing to everybody who's out there. We've seen plays and movies, blindness, uh, speech impediments, you know, you know, like the King's speech, et cetera, you know, those kind of things, uh, deafness, uh, physical disabilities, mental disabilities, you know, they've all been played out and um, brought forward to, to the general public. Uh, but has cystic fibrosis ever been uh, a subject in a play or a movie that uh, an actor played and then that it was pronounced that you knew about that or, or no? Well, I'm so glad that you're bringing that up, Carl. Um, 
because it's fascinating. Um, a lot of the disability narratives that we have, um, first of all, only about 3% of all narratives in the last 100 years have featured disability. And from that amount, only, I want to say about 2% of those roles featuring disability have been played by actors who actually have that disability. What we see even to this day is able-bodied actors playing disability. And so that is what I'm trying to advocate for is that authentic representation of having people like myself who have cystic fibrosis play characters with cystic fibrosis. Um, there was a film that was a Hollywood film that came out um, a couple years ago. It featured a narrative around cystic fibrosis and it was written by people who were able-bodied. It was, the characters were played by people who did not have CF. And it's frustrating because I am a professionally trained actor and um, I see somebody misrepresenting my experience um, just because they don't have that within their own life experience. Um, so what I'm trying to do is have this authentic representation and understanding of what it is to live with disability. And these pieces, both with um, the feature film of Worth One Salt, featuring a cystic fibrosis narrative, and the off-Broadway show Breathe With Me, which I am writing, these would be narratives written by people with CF with characters um, played by actors with CF. So this would be actually the first time this has happened um, in this capacity. Fascinating. I, f I find that fascinating that it, it's never been touched upon except in that one experience that up, up till now. So what is the screenplay? What it, you know, just give us sure. you know, like you a, a couple minutes of screenplay, you know, you wake up one day and you're off to work and then something happens and then it's a, it's a collection of what happens in the life of or in the day of or, yeah. you know, is is it spread over like a number of years or is this like just a, like a, sh a short take of what an experience might be? What, what's yeah. going on in this? Well, I, you know, the, the short film, I'm sorry, the feature length film, Worth One Salts, is uh, written by my dear friend, Nicholas Ferracamo, and the log line for the film would be, a blue collar family outside of Boston is investigating how a chronic illness affects their life and their family. So it really is about two brothers and a dad in a blue-collar family where they're just very traditional values and it's work, 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 work. And there's this one son who has, still is working alongside of them but has cystic fibrosis. And it's about the interpersonal relationships and how they have the experience with each other but also this unseen disease within their family and how that affects them. Um, so you, you see the progression um, of how the family deals with that um, within their family. And I believe like there's a big, there's a big story 
theme within Worth One Salt and Breathe With Me, which is all about what are you going to do with your life? You got one shot. You got your time is limited. How are you going to use your time and your breath to to have the most impact and feel the most alive? Right. It's it's like what I said. I, I believe it was on uh, podcast twenty four. Is like, what do you make? What do you produce? What do you make? My father used to always ask that. You know, what do you make? What do you produce? You know, what are you leaving behind for others to look at or to remember you by? You know, what do you make? And it doesn't mean money. It, it means, like, what do you produce? Can you make something that somebody years and years from now are going to look back and say, oh, yeah, Katie did this. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a great enterprise that you're involved with. And, you know, I, I certainly wish you all the best. It sounds like a great storyline for everybody to really, you know, get a hold of and maybe do a lot of self-reflection on it, or they could say that I recognize that person, I recognize that family. It's something that I could relate to. Because if you're not doing something that somebody can relate to on a one-on-one, -on -one, at least you're, you're reaching out and you're giving the attempt to somebody can like say, I know that, I, I've, I've experienced that, or I know somebody that's experienced that. We don't all have to be in a car crash to experience what a car crash might be like. Or, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take too much to, to, to really think outside the box this on that. Part of the conversation actually brought back one of the, one of the first films that they showed us when, uh, among the first shoes when I was, was doing the film study back in school, and The Miracle Worker, the Ooh. Helen Keller story. Yes. And it, it focuses on disability, people's refusal to deal with the disability, to recognize the disability, and then that one key individual that makes such a change in that. Um, but but the film just, just brought this all up. And of course, I mean, it was an actual story. It was an actual happening. Um, now it's, it's in there, there's that, that key individual that leads this through. But that's a very individual thing. But it's, it's a hero story, isn't it? It really is. But the heroes are both the person who helped her and Helen herself in that. Are there any parallels in your telling of these stories or your part in these stories? Because everybody loves a hero. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I think that, again, with that responsibility in the storytelling, um, I want to be very careful with disability narratives because I think some people can either, they'll either face it and um, they reject it because it's, painful to them in some way and there is a fear around it or we have the oh my gosh you can do that wow you're an inspiration so I can do it so that's what we face a lot in the disability is like what we you know like kind of like that inspiration um which is still objectifying people like actually. that people like winners mm -hmm. and people like to see people overcoming yeah you know them you know, in themselves, in spite of themselves sometimes, uh, but what I, I can understand that. I care most about what makes this person human. It's not so much like, what what is that superhero thing that they're doing? Um, it's how are they making choices in their individual moments and relationships that I really want people to look at, not so much of Don't like ignore the it. grand hero story of, how can I apply this to my everyday life? Because I don't want people taking a story that is so far removed from them that they don't feel like they can like put it on 
themselves and, and step into it in some way. But, but in some way paralleling, seeing it's, it's not creating a hero, it's becoming your own inspiration. That, I think, is a great distinction. Yes, and having that internal battle and doing it for yourself. Um, and becoming your own hero. I guess that would be the ultimate thing. Is It's not for everybody else. It is your individuality and your identity shining through that is the biggest challenge, I think, that we face as humans. And in that way, I, I could see, yeah, the, um, the hero. And the other thing that I'm thinking of, of attaching, to, again, to that miracle worker is you see within that, that example the ally. Right, yes. and so what I want to do with all of this work uh, in theater is I want to create empathy. Uh, that's really what all I want to do is create empathy, but I also want to, in that empathy, create allyship. So people feel like, oh yes, this is how I can support my fellow human in a way that is, um, unique to this individual, so. It, it's key that you use the word empathy and not sympathy. It's not about oh, awe, yeah. it's about broadening understanding. Yes, because I, I believe that people have fear in our American society around disability, yet it is something that any one of us can experience either ourselves or within the person we love at any time. And I think that the more that we become comfortable in including that in, 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 um, in our society, that, uh, that we can all just feel more peaceful um, and free within our own identities. Um, when we're not, it, it's like, you know, running away from death. You know, what, what would happen if we just embraced like these actual universal experiences of life? You talk about inspiration, and of course, uh, I don't think there's been an interview with any actor or, or director or producer where, you know, you didn't ask about, you know, who are your inspirations? And, and I'm going to use my own example for a second. I think highly underrated, but, but highly recognized. When I see Kevin Kline on a cast, I have to see the movie. And people don't realize, I mean, the, the guy got a, a uh, he did get an Oscar, um, he's been nominated for Tonys and Emmys. And he was actually inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame back in 03. He went to Juilliard. He went yeah. from, he was, a, he was a Midwestern kid, went to Juilliard. So his roots are in the theater. And then, you know, he took that to film. But I just, you know, this is one of these people that he, he was commenting. He says, you know, the, and we talked about this earlier. You have that three minutes a shot after five hours before and five hours afterwards. And I have, I have to paraphrase. He says, I immerse myself in the character for while I'm in makeup until after they say you can go home for the day. Then I need to become me. So we actually even talked about that. Talk about some of your inspirations, be they producers, directors, actors. Oh my gosh, yes. I'm a, Big question? <laughs> it's a huge question because also, you know, there's that old adage of good artists just steal. And it is true. I'm always taking inspiration from multiple places, but uh, I hide my sources. Uh, but I will share some of those sources. Uh, and it's not an all-inclusive inclusive list. That's, that's, yes. that's the disclaimer. It's not few. inclusive, yes. <laughs> um, so it, I have so many inspirations. Uh, 
Yeah, I would say actually in the line of the Juilliard grads, uh, Viola Davis is one of my favorite oh actors. My um, and I admire her work uh, beyond all. Like, I, I watch her work and I learn um, from her, her vulnerability and just her, she attacks the, the language like with such eloquence. Um, love her. I'd say in terms of stylistic uh, influences, Shakespeare, it's, it's a big one. Uh, my personal Instagram handle is all the world's her stage. Um, and I'm a huge Shakespeare nerd. I love, I love Shakespeare, but also um, Tennessee Williams with his poetic oh. language. Me and TW, we're, we're homies. Uh, I love Tennessee. I, I go to New Orleans and try to follow his his trail there too. Um, but if if uh, if I can tell a story, anything remotely close to Tennessee, that I would consider a success. Carol, she's 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 on the Tennessee list really? here. This is the hit list. This is the, the, I, the I the am. Baseball. We're going she's to on the our show. I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Wow. This is. Boy, did we fall into this one? It, so Tennessee Williams, yeah. um, just familiarize you know the folks out there. I mean, you just threw out a name, but Tennessee Williams and his body of work, while he was actively working and producing, and he wasn't that popular because it was so centralized or you know in, in a small geographical area. It was until later that he became better known, more famous because as people took his message and his writings outside of that geographical area in the United States, then it became more of like, oh, that guy, yes. So what, what happened with, with Tennessee Williams that you more or less latch on to that star and uh, want to emulate that, that? Not his way of doing things, but you want to emulate him as far as like being open to being you know, that kind of a storyteller. Yeah. Um, well, what I love is his heightened language and it's a mix between the ultimate truth and poetry and um i believe that also in the setting of tennessee's plays there is this magical element of being between a memory and the present moment and so a lot of the work that I'm working to develop in Breathe With Me is at that intersection of this limbo space between memory and the moment. And what does that look like when we blend the two? Because I do think that memory impacts the present moment and the present moment can change past memories. So I think it's really interesting at focusing on this, where do they meet? Where do these worlds overlap. And I think of pieces like The Glass Menagerie, um, you know, one of his greatest works where we have Tom, the main character, who is reflecting in a sense on a memory, but it is present for us as the actor. Um, and yet we still have this ability to be with the character as he is in self-reflection through his monologues. Uh, you know, my favorite being the last one of, I didn't go to the moon, I went much farther, for time is the longest distance between two places. <laughs> Wonderful. There are, <laughs> we, have, we have hundreds of people right now that are sitting down and they are Googling this. So congratulations on that. You, you've thought provoking uh, and making people 
think and reflect. Excellent. Thank you. You Very make me well, feel Katie. like I'm doing my job Very and well, helping me live in my purpose. Yeah. Well, well you're, you're living in the area where Lee Harper, uh, Truman Capote, yes. and all these folks, these, these were all in that district. You are, yeah. you are in a historical artisan district. This has been episode 25, and we, we've never done one that flowed so quickly, but I'm looking at the clock, and we have... We have filled this, and we could go on for. Did we a fill long up time. our bandwidth for the for the rest of the year? <laughs> we may have. But You're gonna you have to what? make this into a multiple series. We could break it up episode. if we had. Well, to. that means that you have to come back. Yes, it's, oh. it's a one of. So we're gonna have to compel you to come back. It's I time. will. We would like you to come back. We want to hear. I want the know, updates when it's released. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, see this and, and talk about these different things because. Every day is a new, an opportunity for a new experience, so there's always something more to talk about. But, uh, you know, thank you so much for being here with us on our, on our little hometown broadcast, uh, just us and 1,400 Australians. For some reason, we don't know. <laughs> we love them. But we love you. We, we love, love you, you dearly. All we love them. Um, Someday we'll get to Queensland. Uh, give, give, us a, give us a parting thought and a wish for the day. And, and uh, how to get a hold of you and how to write you and, and yes. get on your website and all your social media accounts. Make, make sure you give us, that, give us that again. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, find us. Um, our, our biggest project is going to be uh, Breathe With Me. Uh, we, I am in the midst of rewrites right now. I'm probably going to go to the cafe, Coffee and Stone after this, and actually playwright uh, and work on the script there. So... Playwriting and theater does happen quite literally everywhere. And uh, yeah, I think that in terms of today, I would just really like to thank each and every one of you as listeners for your time and for showing up. And I just encourage you to take a moment to appreciate the breath that you have today. And uh find a little gratitude in the moment. Beautiful thoughts, Katie. Carl, you always put a nice bow on it. Go ahead. Can well, you top that? You don't need to. This isn't a competition. I, no, it's not. I, I, I cannot top it. No, but uh, I, I believe our last uh, podcast, uh, the word was tolerance. Tolerance. And, and this one, I'm just going to put uh, accepting. Yeah. Ex tolerance is the first step toward acceptance. Acceptance of who you are, where you are, and, uh, and learn how to, you know, increase your own self-awareness of where you are at the moment and how to improve somebody else. Uh, remember, uh, we always want to do a good deed. and We never want to look down upon someone unless we are helping them up. Mm -hmm. So once again, my mantra is to each day do a good deed and to build yourself up within your own community, within your own family, and be that positive force that just helps everybody along, be the light in the dark, as you know, I could, I could say. And, but uh, I want you to at least reflect upon how you could improve yourself and others around you in your own little circle. Mm -hmm. And that's critical, I believe. And if you need help, never be too bashful that you don't reach out. Uh, I always like to close with these words, and I hope you take them to heart. Remember, when your heart is full of love, there is no room for hate. Thank you so much, all. We'll see you the next time.